Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Library Science podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael LaMagna. Today, I'm joined by the author of The Discourse of Scholarly Communication, published in 2023 by Roman and Littlefield. This book examines topics like disciplinary boundaries, the production and producers of scholarship, the connectedness of content and forms, and the role of libraries and archives as the stewards of scholarship through the lens of the Enlightenment. Joining me to discuss this book is the author, Patrick Gamsby, the scholarly communication librarian and cross-appointed to the Department of Sociology at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Excellent. So before we begin and discuss your book, The Discourse of Scholarly Communication, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your path into academic librarianship. Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, I was a um, sociology student at uh, the University of Western Ontario as an undergrad, and uh, I was a research assistant for one of my jobs, and I also uh, worked in the interlibrary loans department at the main library there, and uh, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of research, this is great, how can I do more? I can get a job in the library. So uh, from my undergrad, I... Uh, went on at the same school uh, and did my master's of library and information science. And so uh, I uh, also kept taking sociology courses, grad level courses. And I thought, you know, if I'm to be any kind of librarian, it's an academic one. Um, and, you know, it doesn't take that long in library school for you to find out that you need oftentimes additional uh, degrees, uh, at least in the humanities and social sciences, if you want to be an academic librarian. So uh, from there, I went to uh, York University and did a master's in, in environmental studies. And I thought, you know, if I don't keep going at this point, I'll never do it. And so I decided to do uh, my PhD at Laurentian right after that. Um, and then from there, I uh, was living uh, in the United States at the time and uh, started working at uh, Duke University in scholarly communications. I got uh, uh, my start there working with uh, Kevin Smith, 
uh, in scholarly communications there. And he um, really showed me the uh, way of that particular uh, area of specialization. Um, and then I, from there, I started working at Brandeis University, also in scholarly communications, uh, before coming home here uh, to Canada, albeit in a different province from where I'm from, uh, to work at Memorial University of Newfoundland. And um, I uh, recently became cross-appointed. Um, and somewhere along the way, I, I wrote that book. That's great. And, and so we could see that path into scholarly communication and what led you to this, this publication. So I have to say, I found the structure of your book really uh, approachable. This, but I have to ask, why did you choose to start your book with a discussion of the Enlightenment? And how does this content, uh, how does this connect with your topic of scholarly communication? Yeah, um, what I was going for there is uh, take something abstract and over the progression of the book, make it much more concrete uh, to uh, a book on the library shelf, actually. So Enlightenment Ultra Abstract in a certain sense, but um, that is something that people are confronted with uh, in uh, when they first start out in universities with uh, mottos of various schools, it's either explicit or implicit that you will be enlightened if you, you know, uh, darken the doorways here and attend. Uh, so for me, it uh, goes back to my uh, interest and uh, studies in sociology where thinking you know, when did social theory kind of start? And, you know, I teach social theory here at Memorial. Um, I started at the Enlightenment, really. And so, you know, everything's kind of swirling around. What if I had st started at the Enlightenment with um, scholarly communication? What then? And uh, it made a lot of sense to do so with um, the um, uh, philosophes or encyclopedies, as they're called I, all, alternately, um, especially uh, Denis Diderot and Jean Lepont d'Alembert, who are the, the editors of the big encyclopedia project known as the Encyclopédie. Um, now, when I worked at Brandeis, they actually had a copy of that there. Now, a copy of the many, many volumes of it. Uh, and they're they're big, they're amazing. If anyone can get uh, their hands on those, they absolutely should. Um, and the idea there predates Wikipedia. They were trying to capture all of the knowledge of the world at the time. And um, that uh, is different from other encyclopedia projects because there was a political bent to it as well. They really wanted to change uh, how people thought which I think is usually the uh, mission of a university as well, uh, or you're not getting your money's worth if something doesn't happen along the way there. So um, really burrowing into the topic of uh, the Enlightenment uh, made a lot of sense. And I you know, go back and talk about uh, Descartes and Kant and all those fun people everybody knows and loves. I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> But Kant, you know, answered the question, what is enlightenment? And it is essentially, you know, humanity's exit from self-incurred minority. Um, and the motto of the enlightenment is have the courage to use your own reason. And this fits exactly with what a university is supposed to do. And so with the enlightenment, I'm kind of starting at an ideological level, the level of the university before, you know, making my way down to things like authorship and then the library and archive, that kind of thing. So starting big and abstract and then whittling down to the book on the shelf, as I said, or um, a document in an archival box, something like that. Yeah. So in the title of your book, you use the term discourse. Why is this term so important to your argument 
of how scholars communicate? Yeah, I, um, you know, discourse has so many meanings. Uh, we don't, I, I would argue, we don't really know what is meant when that term is used, but it's a, it's a fancy term bandied about in academia. It sounds cool, at least to me, but uh, really uh, burrowing into uh, its definition specifically with uh, the work of Michel Foucault, um, which he referred uh, to it as uh, variously, uh, silent murmur, um, which really resonated with me. Um, it could be perceived as paradoxical, but let's put that to the side. A silent murmur being, you know, how um, uh, certain uh, mores and norms of uh, the academia as an institution become adopted, become um, uh, replicated, reproduced, so on and so forth. So uh, the to me, the discourse of uh, scholarly communication is uh, all of the things that people generally talk about with scholarly communication, such as open access, say research repositories, um, copyright, uh, author rights, things of that nature. So all, all of those well-known things in the field of scholarly communication, at least in the library world, but then the other side of things from, um, you know, what isn't often talked about, you know, what lies beneath, such as the ideology of the Enlightenment um, that is behind a lot of um, uh, things that go on there. Even something like uh, publisher parish, that's a well-known phrase, but um, there isn't a lot of work on that. It's just one of those known things that needs to happen, but you won't find it in, say, a collective agreement for instructions <laughs> um, to, you know, tenure track, faculty, or um, uh, even tenured faculty going for promotion that uh, really uh, publisher parish is uh, something that's known uh, discussed widely, written about seldomly, and uh, is at the heart of uh, scholarly communications in a lot of ways, where there is a uh, preference for the written word above all else. And um, one of the things I do is um, uh, look at uh, Michel Foucault's lectures, which were, uh, although they're published, and it is a, it takes the box for a uh, printed uh, text, the print, printed word, it is um, him speaking to people, both in a uh, seminar as well as a lecture. He had two versions of you know what he did, um, and uh, I think that's something to keep in mind. Really, is that um, although we do focus so much on the written word as part of the discourse, that's one of the rules of what we do. Um, the lecturing side of things, the advising side of things are extremely important and they're often in the shadow of uh, the written word. Um, and that's um, known, but at the same time, not really uh, explored. Yeah, so, so you talk about and I think typically that discourse is disciplinary based, right? And so yeah. we know that it's higher education, it's very siloed in that that regard, but you have an interesting conversation about uh, interdisciplinary research. And so, and as you know, that's one of those hot topics, buzzwords that's thrown about quite a bit. Uh, it was probably a little bit more popular a few years ago than today, but can you tell me a little bit about interdisciplinary, how it's defined, and then how, how would you contrast that to say multidisciplinary? 
Yeah, so something like interdisciplinarity, the most basic definition, um, which a, a, an author named Julie Thompson Klein, who's written several books on the topic, uh, uh, is quick to point out, is the integration of two or more disciplines. Um, and that could mean a variety of different things. Um, but really, it's the integration of two or more sub-disciplines, because as everyone knows who studied any kind of discipline, the more you study it, the more specific you get, and the the less you get into other areas of specialization. Um, so um, in a way you could almost become uh, uh, unaware of them or blind to them um, in some way. And so interdisciplinarity is that integration, the bringing together, whereas multidisciplinary is almost um, a juxtaposition or contrast of various disciplines. So you could take a course with, um, say, a, a biology uh, professor, a philosophy professor, a sociologist, sociology professor um, on climate change, and you would get uh, a different uh, angle in which to look at that topic um, and interdisciplinarity would bring all of those perspectives together um, to almost uh, not necessarily solve it would be great if you could solve that problem but tackle the issue together um, so it's a very different way of looking at it but those terminologies interdisciplinarity multidisciplinarity those are thrown around uh, almost as if they're synonyms for one another um, but yeah, but the majority of my focus uh, in the second chapter of the book is on interdisciplinarity and the interconnectedness of knowledge, which that's the title of the chapter, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. But what was interesting about that chapter is you're you're talking about um, interdisciplinary research and you're pairing it up with open access. And, and I know our audience is probably familiar with the term open access being that we're geared towards those in library science. But can you discuss that connection between open access, interdisciplinary research, and then pair it up with maybe closed access models? And why is this conversation important for scholarly communication? Sure, yeah. Um, one thing that I, I found interesting uh, while working on the book is uh, with regards to open access, it's a term that's been used for a long time. Um, like it's in the five laws of library science. Um, and it, it's, uh, it has there's some connective tissue between it and how we use it now, which is in the digital world, using the internet, anyone with an internet connection can uh, access the material, which is often a PDF of scholarship. Um, that's a, um, and there aren't really any um, copyright restrictions to it. That's a, I'm paraphrasing Peter Suber's definition of it in his book, Open Access. Um, 
So open access itself, the concept of it has existed for a long time, and you can see it in public libraries, bringing people in. It's just uh, facilitated um, and so much easier um, to both understand and access these days with the internet. Um, so as far as interdisciplinarity goes, um, when you have open access literature out there, you know, just thinking of journal articles where, um, say, when I was working on this book, if I didn't have access to Michel Foucault's lectures, I wouldn't have written about them. It's very simple. Um, I wouldn't be able to integrate that into my work. Um, and the same goes for any discipline. Um, collections librarians certainly know that uh, budgets are limited and you can't buy everything. And uh, you can only provide so much to uh, the users of your library. And so in a certain sense, uh, it's best if there's some kind of collective collecting out there where we're able to make things available um, uh, from various institutions and yet being able to access them in a way that doesn't uh, stress the interlibrary loans department, which I know that's tough because I worked there uh, many moons ago, as I said before. Um, but really uh, the connection between the two uh, for me is that uh, the more uh, open access literature is available, the more there are, um, the greater chance there are for uh, interdisciplinary connections. Um, and it is something as simple as using Google. Somebody just stumbles upon it. Um, now, the same thing can happen in the stacks. And I encourage people to still use those, absolutely. But um, yeah, when people can access materials, that leads to all, all kinds of uh, potential for innovation. That's basically the crux of what I'm going for with that. Absolutely. And again, it goes to the the whole model here of working towards the public good and public education, right? To make sure that yeah. content is open access. So in your third chapter, uh, you're exploring the production of scholarship. And, and I really liked your discussion of peer review and the peer review process. So why is that important to the production of scholarship? Yeah, well, peer review is... Uh one of the pillars of scholarship. Uh, but it's so funny because uh, who among us has really been trained to become a peer reviewer? Um, not me, uh, it just kind of happens. Uh, you get a certain degree and suddenly you are magically able to uh, review a peer in a really professional way. Um, so as one of the pillars, you know, you think about it um, for facilitating scholarly communication, the gatekeeping aspect of it, this, this is true scholarship, this is not, this needs to be refined, so on and so forth. But um, for those of you that have done peer review, you know that it isn't always a pleasant experience. There's lots of horror stories out there. And um, there's good peer review, uh, which really that's a way to enlighten um, the author or authors of a piece, um, which helps enlighten um, the readers of it after it's published. So it's a, it's a really uh, a credit to whatever profession, uh, faculty, librarian, whatever, uh, to provide good peer review. Um, you're helping each other that way, you're helping further knowledge. Bad peer review also happens where people don't uh, read the material at all. Um, now, they may just pass it along um, and, you know, check the box. Yes, this is fine for publication or, you know, offer some um, pithy comments for improvement in this area, which doesn't really help the material at all. Um, and then there's 
ugly peer review uh, where uh, something happens, it seems, in someone's life and they need to take it out on the scholarship that's in front of them. And that no one enjoys that um, when you're on the receiving end, certainly, and hopefully um, people strive to not do that uh, as peer reviewers. But it's really a mixed bag of uh, peer review. And um, I mentioned the um, uh, other, the fourth option, which is without peer review. Um, and that uh, was a reference in particular to the SoCal affair, Alan Sokol, um, who is a um, scientist who ended up writing a piece uh, called Transgressing the Boundaries, and there's a big long title to it, um, for a journal called Social Text, which was very much a postmodern, more humanist type of journal uh, in the 90s, and uh, it didn't have peer review. And so he kind of put it in there as like a Trojan horse of sorts, and uh, it was published. And once it was published, he said, aha, it's complete gobbledygook. It was nonsense. I fooled you all, so on and so forth. Um, and I think that was part of a science wars uh, a uh, special publication. And so um, really that just furthered the war, sparked the further sparked the debate of, uh, you know, what is the value of uh, humanities? What is the value of social science, science? You know, what is it to be scientific? What is peer review? In a certain sense, it was good because it kept the debate going, but in another sense, it was really harmful to, you know, the uh, well-intentioned people of social text who welcomed them with open arms. Um, so, uh, that's a path to cynicism for sure, if that happens to you. But uh, yeah, peer review, it's um, everywhere in the scholarly communication process, um, but it's uh, seldomly taught, um, seldomly um, explored outside of the parameters offered by a particular publisher. So um, I think there's more work to be done in uh, um certainly changing the peer review process uh, as far as education goes, as far as, you know, ethics go, um, as far as humanity goes, and just being kind to one another. And we know about those controversies where people try to submit those fraudulent journal articles to kind of show the flaw of the system. And I think you're you're hitting on a great point. As a peer reviewer myself, there was no training. It was, you know, start the process. Where do you think that lies? Does it lie with the graduate programs? Does it lie with the publishers? Uh, where should that fall? Or even a professional I, association? Yeah, well, all, all of the above would, would be good. Um, a, a variety of takes on it. But uh, I think right now we're kind of leaving it to the publisher not to train necessarily, uh, but in a certain sense, because there's the review form that you would get. And this kind of dictates, you know, what what you are to say about it and the categories you use. Um, but I think it would uh, be really beneficial if it was taught in grad school. Um, now, this does happen sometimes. Um, didn't happen for me. I know that uh, in any of my grad degrees. But um, uh, for example, here in the sociology department, there is a graduate seminar and uh, that that type of topic does come up. Uh, I, I don't believe it's taught in uh, or it's not a training session, but it, it's, you know, discussed at the very least. Um, that was uh, very much uh, a silent murmur <laughs> in uh, my graduate training. It was mentioned, but not much was discussed about it. So I would say, you know, if it could be part of a graduate school curriculum, that would do wonders uh, for um, ameliorating the peer review 
um uh archipelago i don't i don't even know what you would call it wasteland various descriptions could be used depending on um what you're uh, asked to do but um yeah i i would say probably grad school but uh, associations can certainly have sessions at conferences um yeah i i like to put it more in the hands of the scholars as opposed to the uh publishers necessarily um although that there may be some intertwinement there if you know uh, the scholar is the editor of a journal then the journal is the publisher so on and so forth so yeah yeah and this worked well with your discussion of the production of knowledge because you're talking about open access and peer review and you brought in the idea of predatory publishers and so how does that fit in this conversation yeah um well, predatory publishers uh, would essentially be without editors, um, uh, without peer review, any of those things that make scholarship um, uh, have some kind of quality check on it. Um, the peer uh, review uh, doesn't really happen. The editing doesn't happen. And you're copying any kind often. Um, that's uh, the other side of... Uh, uh peer review really um where you know there is a legitimacy to the alan sokal affair with the social text despite the controversy around it and then predatory publishers i mean taking advantage of scholars who are burrowed so deeply in what it is that they're doing that uh, they don't really consider the venue that they're putting their work in um and unfortunately you know we're thinking philosophically um if the work is really sound, it shouldn't matter where it's published. It still stands on its own, but uh, that that's not how it works. And the uh, reputation of a uh, predatory publisher could be such that it really tarnishes, you know, a scholar's CV. And you don't want that to happen where, you know, your hard work is diminished. And of course... Uh, there is value to peer review, you know, taking the good kind of peer review, it helps sharpen um, a uh, argument, helps sharpen a paper, a book, so on and so forth, uh, if it's done right. And of course, with a predatory publisher, that's entirely absent. So um, yeah, it, it's unfortunate that this is, you know, crept into the scholarly communication system. Now, like a now, virus. Absolutely. <laughs> and as you're discussing predatory publishers, I'm, I'm thinking about how you opened up and talking about publish or perish, right? Yeah. And, and that idea, do you, do you think that concept of publish or perish, that focus on getting X number of articles published each year so that you can go for tenure promotion, it, do you think that's leading to the growth that we see in predatory publishers? Oh, absolutely. Uh, because um, it's uh, quantity over quality. It's the the name of the game and the high um, article processing charges that would come with a predatory publisher or hidden uh, fees because you're not really paying for anything. You know, there's no nothing behind it other than just them raking in the money. Um, with no quality check. Um, but yeah, the publisher parish, that uh, definitely makes it so people are um, perhaps hopping from one um, uh, project to the next or within one project, maybe cutting off a slice often called salami slicing of a, a project and where it's not really that different from what was said in the first article and just a way to you know, fill out one CV. Um, it's difficult to blame for a scholar in that position because that's uh, what's being asked, really. Um, 
Uh, and so a predatory publisher is lying in wait, almost like a spider in a web, looking to trap, you know, unsuspecting um, scholars who really have their heads uh, down in their own research, um, as opposed to, you know, assuming that there's somebody out there that's going to uh, uh, do something uh, nefarious with their hard work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now I want to bring it back to Foucault. Now in your fourth chapter, you're, you're discussing the connection between content and form. And as you mentioned, uh, Foucault's letters are, were, a, were a presentation that was in a lecture that yep. was eventually published. So how does forms like lectures, textbooks, books themselves, essays reflect not only the content, but also the intended audience for that, that material? Yeah, it's a... Uh... It can be limited um, depending uh, one's audience or one's reach can be limited depending on, you know, the format that you use. Something like digital humanities, you know, isn't uh, fully accepted across all of the academy. And so you may do an amazing digital humanities project and it may not be deemed to be worthy for certain scholars. However, you should keep pushing through that because that's part of uh, what I get at in the chapter is that, you um, uh, we should uh, think through the forms that we use to communicate our ideas. And um, uh, when I discuss uh, Theodore Adorno's essays, that's very much at the, the heart of it. Um, or even uh, Jacques Derrida's books, where if you look at uh, his book, Glass, it is almost a Mobius strip folding in on itself. There's no real beginning. There's no real end. There's a couple topics they intertwine the text has different kinds of font it's um it's alarming when you open it up where do you begin you know are you even supposed to read it can it be read is it a book um yeah so uh challenging form as well as content and how they they work together uh i think is really important uh so with foucault's lectures i think certainly lectures are a form of scholarship you know relaying ideas um and uh, who says it uh, can often dictate to certain people whether or not it is scholarship at all. It could be the exact same thing being said, but because a professor says it, it's scholarship. Because a student says it, it's not. I don't think that that's quite accurate. You can be a scholar as uh, a student. Um, but in the case of Foucault's lectures, he um, uh, was very much uh, trying to communicate to uh, as many people as possible in the lecture, although he found it very uh, lonely being up there by himself. And so he set up a separate uh, enterprise, which was his seminars, where there could be much more intensive study, there could be dialogue. Um, uh, but I, I like the spirit of it, which is at the Collège de France, where uh, anyone in the public can come. That's another element to it, which is very much... I think at the heart of libraries more generally, but open access in particular, because really, you know, what is a publication? It's supposed to be something accessible to the public, put out for the public to read uh, as far as scholarship goes. And I think a lot of that has been lost um, with um, uh, uh companies owning and closing off scholarship. Um, you had mentioned closed access uh, a little while ago. Um, that uh, doesn't help the advancement of knowledge. It helps the uh, advancement of a stock price, say, or you know, a CEO's uh, wallet um, or bank account, but it doesn't help the advancement of knowledge, which I think is uh, the whole point. Now, you bring up an, extra, an interesting point about um, thinking about 
who's actually either delivering the lecture, producing the content, right? So if it's a student, uh, it's not given the same le level of authority that, say, a faculty member. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about authorship as in terms of, you know, what is an author? What makes an author? How are they a producer? Yeah, um, well, I think this can go back to uh, the encyclopedists who really saw um, uh, each publication, each article that they wrote, or each attempt to publish something uh, was always a, a challenge to your credibility, meaning just because you wrote, you know, a certain uh, text, tract, whatever, at one point, that doesn't suddenly make you uh, the one who always knows for, certainly not for everything, but in that particular area. Um, and uh, I think uh, with Faculty members, um, since you know, I I am one. Um, just because I say something doesn't make it so. That there there always needs to be some kind of um, backing up of that, whether or not it's data, whatever kind of professor uh, one is, or what I like to think is a very scientific way of um, heavily citing things, and uh, that goes back to uh, Descartes in his uh, book, A Discourse on the Method, where he. Um, I should really directly quote him in order for this to live up to what he said, but I'm going to have to paraphrase. There he says that, uh, don't believe what other people have written about me, um, believe my words. And so um, behind that, the citing things, the scientific element of the humanist or social science pursuit, there's some uh, credibility behind that. And so uh, in the classroom or lectures such as Foucault's, there there was always something uh, behind that uh, where uh, he would reference specific texts, not just say something just because, which is kind of ironic because that's what he does in his books a lot of the time is that he just kind of goes and doesn't uh, always cite his sources, but he's much better at that in uh, his lectures. And it's funny because some would see lectures as not being scholarship in the same way as the books. I see them as all scholarship. Um, and he's actually a lot more careful at times in uh, the lectures than he is in his books. <laughs> now, in your fourth chapter, uh, I, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, uh, in, in your fifth chapter, you're talking about how libraries and archives help facilitate the production and consumption of scholarship. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, that uh, they uh, very much give scholarship a second life or a first life, depending on how you see it. So the second life uh, comes from uh, Walter Benjamin, um, a German scholar in the early 20th century affiliated with the Frankfurt School. And he referred to translations as a way to give something a second life. And I think that uh, libraries and archives do that as well. And that uh, a book or article or um, archival document may be lying in wait uh, for someone at some point at some time. And uh, a connection could be made decades later um, where there's a, a discovery of some kind. And so um, they help facilitate that. But then there's the other side where there's uh, uh, space constraints, budget constraints, where you can only have so much stuff. And so weeding comes into it. And uh, that's where there's the possibility of uh, things that could be 
a, a great connection, a great bit of knowledge for someone at some point, they're taken away because they haven't been used in the last, say, 10 years. Um, and I think of uh, what I wrote in the conclusion, but it's applicable here, uh, Theodore Adorno's concept of a message in a bottle, um, which that's how he saw uh, his uh, critical theory that it may not have applicability to uh, his own time, but somewhere down the road, um, somebody else will pick up that message in a bottle and uh, do something with it, either theoretically or practically, um, for the betterment of uh, society. And I think um, that's always a danger with uh, weeding, that um, also as an author, it's tough to have your book considered as a type of weed, an unwanted plant, right? Um, but so it goes. Uh, that That's part of the challenge. I always think that um, uh, librarians ought to ask for more funding. It's an easy thing to say, but uh, it's an important thing to say, um, and not just uh, accept um, the budgets that are given, uh, because... Uh, this is always deemed to be the heart of the university. And, you know, what happens if you have a bad heart? Um, it's not a good life. So um, you can see at various universities, uh, certain buildings popping up, say for sciences or well, it's typically sciences, engineering, say whatever, all kinds of funding for certain areas, but the libraries don't always get the same kind of funding. And I think there needs to be some kind of shift in the thinking around what deserves uh, funding. Um, and with uh, the library, that's uh, the interdisciplinary space par excellence. And so everything kind of flows through there, whether somebody knows it or not, if they're just accessing it through uh, an online catalog and they don't think that's the library, that is the library. Um, so yeah, they, they play an absolutely vital role in the beginning, middle, end process of any uh, scholarly communication endeavor. Um, so where does all the material come from that you use for a book? I know where mine came from, either my own personal library or the one I work at or in interlibraries or the ones um, that uh, um, are online in a way, the open access materials. So um, yeah, libraries deserve uh, a lot more uh, credit for what it is that they do as far as um, their role in enlightening uh, people. Yeah. Yeah, and I really like that you you use the term space to talk about it because oftentimes that's the the problem we're having is that it's valuable space in the heart of the campus, and so oftentimes it's well, why are we housing all these books that you know the perception is students just aren't reading? Yeah, <laughs> and, so, and and you know, and I agree with you. It's troubling to think that we're going to be weeding something that could have value to a scholar down the road. And, you know, how do we combat that? And, you know, it, frankly, it's the digital environment just exacerbating this problem because it's everybody views it as it's just online. Let's go online. Right. And of course, that's not the case at all. Um, not everything <laughs> is available. Uh, uh, yeah, not at all. Uh, but I think it can go backwards because um, when I was talking about the enlightenment at the beginning, and that's how my book kind of begins, and then I move all, all the way to uh, libraries and archives, um, instead of putting that all on libraries and archives, you know, you go back to uh, say middle stage in that process of peer review, as you mentioned before, if peer review uh, were um, uh, reworked and made better, then there wouldn't be as a questionable material going through uh, the scholarly communication uh, ecosystem. Something like publish or perish, if there isn't an emphasis 
on uh, quantity over quality, then there aren't as many books there taking up uh, the space. Um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, a lot can be done. And there's an interconnectedness to it that this problem isn't just a library problem, although it's treated that way a lot of the time, uh, and it's just dumped on librarians and archivists that um, uh, administrators uh, need to take some ownership over this as well. Uh, peer reviewers, publishers need to take some ownership of this and so on. I, I really like what you're saying there because it really resonated with me that if we improve the peer review process, if we address publisher parish, it will address the space limitations that we often have, which leads to weeding our collections. Uh, and, you know, I guess, does it all come down to tenure? Do we have to rethink tenure uh, requirements at, at, in, in terms of what's being published, how it's being published? Uh, should more value be placed on open access materials through that process to kind of facilitate that movement? And would that then address predatory journals? Yeah, um, it, it's tricky because, you know, tenure is at the beginning, there's a push, uh, a beginning of a, a career, there's a push to, you know, do something right away, it's got to be done. Um, but there could be a shift with, uh, and I think there is in certain places, uh, the emphasis on uh, publications as paramount to everything. Um, that uh, maybe there's more of a shift towards teaching for an excellent teacher, um, lecturer, uh, so on and so forth. They get to uh, have their um, their craft uh, appreciated in a way that it may not be in a particular tenure process. And I say that there are um, uh, lecturer uh, or not lecturer professor uh, positions out there that are uh, teaching heavy or focused entirely, and so. Um, they would get their credit um, for their teaching activities in a position like that. But I think it shouldn't be restricted to that, just a specialization over here. These are the professors who teach. These are the ones who research. But across the board, there can be some um, recognition of um, what's really important. I think if you can make the difference in um, a student or two's life, really make a difference in their life by teaching them something or by advising them. That's worth a lot more than a book that's going to get weeded from a stack. Very true. Absolutely. I, I have to, you know, Patrick, I know we're taking up a lot of your time. And as we wrap up our time together, you know, I want to see what else are you working on? Are you continuing along this thread or are you going to move in a different direction with your research? Uh, yes, I guess I am in a different direction right now. Um, I'm just putting the finishing touches on um, uh, my third book, which is uh, The Dialectic of Herbert Marcuse. Um, I, I don't think I mentioned him at all in, that, in the book we're talking about. Um, when uh, I was at Brandeis, I uh, was a librarian there. Um, uh, Herbert Marcuse, he's part of the Frankfurt School, Critical Theory. Some people would know who he is. Anyway, he was a faculty member at uh, Brandeis in uh, the late 50s and uh, 60s. And um, this was probably about 10 years ago. Uh, it was about to be the 50th anniversary of the publication of his most famous book, One Dimensional Man. And I remember looking around thinking, we got to celebrate this. And uh, there wasn't a lot of material known there. Long story short, um, working with some uh, of the archivists there, I was able to find an early draft of his book, One Dimensional Man, that had been stored off-site at Harvard. And uh, we brought in. It's amazing because it's a book... Um, 
uh, in a box marked with an X, just like pirate treasure. X marks the spot. <laughs> there it was. So uh, he had gifted the um, uh, first draft of the manuscript to uh, Brandeis. Um, from there, I started teaching in the History of Ideas program, just like he did, so on and so forth. But anyway, that um, project of um, uh, remembering Herbert Marcuse has been with me since then. And so uh, I just am tomorrow, I think I'll finish uh, the first draft of my book and send it back to the publisher uh, on his work and talking about the manuscript and a lot of his other, you know, critical theory. So um, that's what I've been working on. And then um, I have uh, another book in the works on uh, Henri Lefebvre, who is the topic of my my first uh, book, Henri Lefebvre, uh, Boredom in Everyday Life. Um, this one, which I guess I'll start on Monday. I'll take a break for Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> and Monday I'll start this other book on uh, Lefebvre, his um, uh, meta-philosophy. He, he calls himself a meta-philosopher, especially later in his career. Uh, and uh, this book is really about looking into what is it that uh, made him a meta-philosopher and why was it so important to him and why has no one really recognized that that's at the um, core of what he was as a scholar. So those uh, two books, that's what I'm working on right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so glad we get to talk to you today and, and that you're finishing up your third book. Hopefully you come back and join us again when that, when that gets published. And, um, you know, your, your fourth book sounds very interesting. D do you have any time to rest <laughs> with all these projects going on? Yeah, yeah. I um, My wife is very patient and uh, I love her very much for letting me um, do this kind of thing on weekends or evenings. Um, but uh, yeah, I definitely need to um, uh, halt uh, the book <laughs> publication process because that uh, will be my fourth book in four years. And so um, I could probably take a break <laughs> from that yeah <laughs> a well-deserved a well break well patrick i want to thank you for your time today i really enjoyed this conversation i i actually really enjoyed your book um and i just want to say i'm your host michael magna and thank you for listening to the new books and library science podcast channel on the new books network Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.